Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 281 Maha Mudra in the Modern World. This week, we're joined by author and Dharma Ocean spiritual director Dr. Reggie Ray to discuss the basics of the Maha Mudra tradition and the way that Reggie is adapting Maha Mudra for the modern world. This is part one of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today with a very special guest. I'm here with Reggie Ray. Reggie, thanks so much uh, for taking the time to speak with us again. We had you on the show, I think it was a couple years ago here in Boulder, and it's great to have you back. My pleasure. Yeah. And we've got uh, quite a few fun and interesting things to kind of explore together. Um, For those that haven't heard our first interview with you, I'll just mention a couple kind of background things to give a little bit of context. Um, First, that you're the spiritual director at the Dharma Ocean Community, which is sort of a uh, amazing modern Buddhist uh, training community that's based both here in Boulder and also in uh, Crestone, Colorado, which is this, for those that haven't been there, this amazing place that's up in the high elevations of Colorado and just looks, it's just incredible. It's a beautiful space. So you've got a retreat center up there and doing a lot of programs there. Um, I also wanted to mention that you're an author, you're a teacher, um, you did PhD training uh, in religious studies at University of Chicago quite a while ago. And you also trained uh, with Chegyam Trungpa Rinpoche, both in the early days and then later on. Um, so quite, quite a background. And today I wanted to speak a little bit with you first about a program that you've put out called Mahamudra in the Modern World. And I found immediately upon seeing this thing, wow, this is really interesting, this topic of practicing Mahamudra in the modern context. And I wanted to sort of explore that with you today. But first, it feels like for those that aren't familiar that may have a different sort of training background, maybe we could start with like the most basics, which is what is this uh, term Mahamudra? What is, uh, what is the history of Mahamudra, the lineage of Mahamudra, and what is the practice? Just kind of some sort of basics around that for people. Well, the uh, Mahamudra um, tradition is a Vajrayana tradition, which means it's connected with Tantric Buddhism. It originated in India and it was preserved in Tibet after Buddhism disappeared from India. Within the Tibetan context, it's considered the pinnacle of all of the teachings. And it is um, equivalent to Dzogchen. There are two different lineages in Tibet. One that came very early, which we call Dzogchen, as the pinnacle teaching. And then Mahamudra is a term given to basically the same set of teachings later. But the interesting thing about the Mahamudra uh, tradition altogether is that it's a tradition of formless practice. And this makes it uh, quite distinct from most of the rest of Tibetan Buddhism, which is very much oriented to iconography and symbolism and ritual and liturgy and uh, visualizations that involve mantra practice. Mahamudra is not like that. It's, It's what's called formless, which means it explores 
the nature of awareness itself directly without any mediation or any need for um, other practices. The other thing about Mahamudra is it's always been an esoteric tradition and many people believe, and I believe as a Buddhist historian actually, that this particular form of uh, this, this most advanced, most uh, stripped down form of meditation actually does go back to the time of the Buddha and that we see it appearing in the esoteric tradition at the time of the Buddha um, later it was called Prajnaparamita. Paramita, for those of you who know about Mahayana history, again an esoteric tradition of formless practice. And it came all the way down and then it has survived in Tibet in this particular way, but it's very, very, very ancient, it's very, very, very basic, and it's naked and very pure. It's, it's an amazing tradition. And again, you know, up until Quite recently, it was an esoteric tradition and not available except to the most advanced uh, yogis and yoginis. And actually, that was my sort of follow-up question, which is this Mahamudra tradition was often taught, my understanding is sort of in private often with certain restrictions around it. And what's interesting about this program, which is uh, it's like 48 hours of material and a lot of different practices, is that you're sort of opening this wide open. It's sort of making it open source in a certain way. Um, so one of my questions is, why did you choose to do that now? And how do you, how do you kind of getting around some of the traditional uh, way of teaching this stuff, which was really much more, as you mentioned, esoteric and also kind of restricted in terms of how it's taught? Well, you know, I'm, um, for all of my uh, innovation, I'm actually very traditional in my approach. And I was, uh, the lineage that I was trained in uh, of Chogyam Trungpa from East Tibet was a tradition that, that uh, Nyingma and Kagyu, for those of you who know about Buddhist history, that emphasized that uh, the really esoteric practices are ones that are potentially uh, applicable to everybody. Um, in Tibetan Buddhism in general, Tibetan culture, as you may know, is a very, very conservative culture. It's a very protectionist culture uh, for good reason. It's been surrounded by these gigantic civilizations, um, India to the south, China to the east, uh, you know, the whole Russian Slavic thing to the west. And Tibet, for that reason, became very, um, very shut in, very protectionist, very conservative. <clears throat> and <clears throat> within the religious tradition, um, even the teachings themselves were also highly protected, so that uh, generally the most advanced practices were only given to people who had been monastics for their whole life or even had been in retreat, you know, for a long time. But there was another trend in Tibetan Buddhism which is part of my lineage, um, there was a figure who lived in the uh, you know, 11th and 12th century named Gampopa, and he, he disagreed with this restrictionist approach to the highest teachings. And he felt that these teachings that I'm offering here should be given to people everywhere. And he uh, and and he's a very important person because he was actually one of the main lineage holder of the whole Kagyu tradition. So this was not a peripheral person; he was very central. And he uh, 
He taught, he taught people who were not Vajrayana students, who had not taken the commitments, who were not monastic people. And he got a lot of criticism for it from the more conservative Tibetans, but he went ahead and did it anyway. Well, that approach um, has been carried on in East Tibet, and uh, Chogyam Trungpa took that approach also when he came to the West. And there are other, some of the most advanced meditation teachers, not a lot, but some of them who have come to the West have also taken this approach that the Mahamudra tradition should be offered widely. And, um, you know, probably the most important voice here has been the 16th Karmapa, um, who died in uh, 1981, and he said he thought, he agreed with this approach, the more liberal, more open, and he said he felt the Mahamudra was more appropriate, the most appropriate of all the Tibetan traditions for the modern world. But generally people have not followed up. I mean, this is the first time really I think that anybody has actually done something like this, but it's very much uh, rooted in the tradition and even in the modern Tibetan teaching situation. Okay, so there's some precedents for doing this. Sure. And yet, in in some ways, you're sort of uh, blazing a trail with respect to actually uh, kind of putting it out there more fully. Yeah, very much. It's interesting. I I really appreciate you saying that, on the one hand, you've been sort of innovating and doing things differently and trying new things. And on the other hand, you sort of consider yourself uh, very traditional in your approach. Yeah. And there was one point in the program where you actually mentioned that you're trying to teach this stuff mostly to secular people without sacrificing the depth of Tibetan Dharma. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned that it's taken you 40 years to be able to begin to do that. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like it hasn't really been a completely straightforward process. Very much so. And I was wondering, uh, why is that? Um... You know, really, I don't know, but there's uh, my own journey, um, strangely enough, you know, if, if when I was young, I would have known it would have taken me 40 years of study and practice to get to the point where I could actually teach this lineage. I, I, don't, I don't know if I would have been able to do it, but that's actually what's happened. And, you know, I spent um, seven years in graduate school studying all of the, the historical things, learning Tibetan, learning Sanskrit, reading the original texts, um, thinking I was wasting my time, actually. I actually thought that, but as it turns out, it was, uh, that was far from the case. Then I met Chogyam Trungpa, and I spent the next 17 years really um, in a situation of extreme edible dependency on him. You know, I was a grown adult. I was in my <clears throat> 30s and 40s, emotionally incredibly dependent on him and the bad part was I didn't grow up as a person but the good part was I actually was able to receive what he had because strangely enough you know this is the thing that I think a lot of modern people don't understand unless there is that dependency on a qualified teacher you know a teacher really has something to offer if there's not some kind of edible projection you're not going to be able to uh, absorb them and what they are. So that's really interesting. So that's 17 years. And then he died in 1987. And really, I would say from 1987 until probably 2007 uh, or 2005, when I moved to Crestone, Colorado and really began teaching openly, I was trying to figure out how to do it. So it's taken all that time. But now, you know, I feel like, wow, okay, great. This is really great. I've learned a lot. 
and I have the information, the tools, and the experience I need to actually do what I wanted to do in the beginning, but but I couldn't. <laughs> okay, awesome. And you, know, this is a question both that I have as uh, a practitioner, and then also in terms of this exploration, which is how do you know when you've discovered the depth that the tradition has to offer sufficiently that you can actually start to teach in the way that you feel like won't water things down? How does one actually know? Well, this is a very interesting point. I don't think you do know. Mm. And what happened with me was I had, um, I had people coming and wanting to study with me. And I would say I was very fortunate. I began working in 1974 at Naropa University when I was um, 32. So I, I was, you know, from this standpoint, pretty young guy. And I began working with students, and I began uh, realizing that what I had learned from Chogyam Trungpa was actually what I wanted to teach. So I taught, and, you know, I taught and explored things and studied things, studied his teachings. I knew I had to practice more. So, but I never, it never occurred to me that I would be a Dharma teacher. Never even crossed my mind. And then at a certain point I had students coming and wanting to study more deeply and wanting to study Vajrayana. And um, Trangu Rinpoche, uh, you know, when I started teaching Vajrayana, as you know, there was a lot of criticism from the traditional Tibetan side. And um, somebody asked Trangu Rinpoche, what right does Reggie Ray have to be teaching Vajrayana? And he said, if he has students coming and wanting to learn Vajrayana from him, if he doesn't do it, he's going to be breaking his bodhisattva vow. And, and they said, well, you know, he's teaching all these students. And he said, well, if he's teaching students out of his inspiration, what possibly could be wrong with that? And that was interesting because Trangu Rinpoche is one of the most conservative of Tibetan teachers. So somebody reported that to me. Of course, I never get any of this firsthand. But <laughs> somebody said, you know, I talked to Trungpa, and I said, oh, that's interesting. And I think that's really true. You know, the students come, and you feel you have to respond, and you may feel a lot of self-doubt and a lot of fear. At the same time, there they are in front of you. And you start teaching, you realize, actually, there's a lot more there than you realized. You have a lot more to offer than you realized. And you discover what you have to offer in the process of teaching. At least that's the way it's been for me. That's really interesting. And then has that process sort of in some ways continued as you've continued to teach? Well, it's not only continued, but I would say it's accelerated. And I would say um, since I've been teaching my practice, actually, I've been pushed a lot deeper in my own practice because I'm teaching. Along the way, I've, I remembered something Chogyam Trungpa said, which at the time, of course, I didn't really quite understand. But I was asking him about teaching, about all of his teaching, about teaching the lineage, teaching, you know, everything I was learning from him. And he said, at a certain point, if you don't teach openly and you don't receive students, you're not going to grow anymore. So I sort of have remembered that. And I'm thinking of that with my own students. I'm really pushing my own students now to teach and do as much as they can. And, you know, it, it's not been an easy process for any of us, but at the same time, they are growing in ways they wouldn't otherwise grow. They would just be dependent on me forever. And that's terrible, you know? Probably for both parties. For both parties. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's hard to say who it's worse for. <laughs> cool. Thank you. 
So you pointed out also uh, in Mahamudra in the modern world that um, many people in your generation who were pursuing the Tibetan Buddhist path, um, and I think this could probably be seen in other Buddhist cultures coming into the West, um, took on the identities of another culture. Yes. Mm -hmm. And stunted in some ways their own spiritual and psychological development by... Yeah. Becoming dependent on those teachers and cultures, which you, which you mentioned in some ways is maybe necessary for a while. For a while, yeah. Do you see the same tendency in younger generations now? And if not, uh, how come? I think the Oedipal uh, problem, which you know, the Oedipal problem, the way I would define it is, I want a mentor. I want to, to, to receive from someone who is more experienced than me. I want that. I need that. I need to rely on somebody who's reliable. So that's the one side. And the other side is I want to be independent and I'm not going to have anything. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And we all have it. I think my generation uh, sort of threw out um, I want to be independent. It's almost as if they just rejected it. And they became... Um, very identified with Tibetan culture. I didn't, you know, my whole generation did. And that's, and the problem is when that continues, and it does continue, I mean, many of my generation are still in that same space, and, you know, it's not healthy, it's not helpful, and they, they haven't grown up, and that's not what Buddhism is for. The younger generation seems to have another problem. I think their thing is because they haven't been so mesmerized by Asian culture as we were, their thing, which a lot of them tell me, I mean, it's very interesting, quite a, a lot of the most interesting people I'm working with now are not my official students, but they're people of the younger generation, and they're telling me, you know, we're independent, we can do what we want to, but we don't have, where are we going to get trained? We don't really have a lineage. We got some training, but we're not getting what we want. And we need more to really be a teacher, because when you teach, you realize, you know, you really do need a lot of tools and a lot of uh, stuff. And so I think their problem is not uh, being able to find authentic training situations for themselves that can keep them going for a while. Interesting. And, and is it because they're not available or is it something? Why is that? Why, why is it so difficult? Well, I think, you know, part of it is it's not available. I mean, you know, I, of course, I see more people who are trying to work with Tibetan teachers, but the, the good Tibetan teachers now have hundreds, if not thousands of students. And there's no personal relationship in, in most cases with these teachers. And often these teachers are too conservative for people who are, who are training now and want them to do things that are ridiculous. I mean, you know, I shouldn't say ridiculous, but want them to do things that really do not address what they actually know that they need as teachers. They don't need to know 8th century Abhidharma from India. They don't need to spend three years studying that. In fact, it would be a complete, in my opinion, a complete waste of time. And yet the Tibetan teachers, because of their situation, that's, you know, they offer a very traditional, rigorous, academic format, which is really not modern and is not that helpful beyond a certain point. 
So I think it's, they're kind of between a rock and a hard place. Teachers don't really have time. There's no personal relationship, and the training being offered isn't necessarily what, what these te- the younger teachers feel they need. Okay, so in, in, you know, to take a kind of economic metaphor, there's a, there's a supply and demand issue yeah, here. Yeah, no, there is a supply and demand issue, exactly. <laughs> that's a big one. <laughs> okay, that's really interesting. And I, I, I know you mentioned uh, in a class that you're teaching recently on somatic meditation that in your experience with Trungpa that he would actually mention that if there wasn't a personal relationship, that that simply wasn't Vajrayana practice. That's right. Yeah. So it sounds like, in your experience, that's also true. That there, that in some ways, that relationship really is critical of learning something from a qualified teacher. Well, it really is. Um, and it wasn't just Trung Rinpoche. I heard uh, uh, Punla Rinpoche also said that. Uh, you know, Punla Rinpoche was a, a Kagyu teacher, a very, very good teacher, and uh, very traditional. And he said, he said, you know, over and over, if you don't have a personal relationship with your spiritual teacher, I mean, Vajrayana cannot happen. And, you know, the reason is, you know, we should talk about the reason for it. There's an yeah. actual reason for it. It's not just somebody's idea. Right. When you, you know, when you practice meditation, you are working with what in Buddhism is called the two veils. Um, and what this means is there are um, two primary levels of obstruction between you and your own enlightened nature, your own Buddha nature. And the process of meditation is really to learn to rest in our own freedom, our own emptiness, our own openness. And these, you know, one of these uh, obstructions is pretty simple and straightforward, which is we get angry, we get upset, we get paranoid, we're thinking too much. You know, it's more or less what we can see, just we can see it in terms of ourselves. You know, we see how discursive, we see how disembodied we are, we see how we're always being um, activated and triggered and, you know, uh, thrown into neurotic upheaval. But there's a much deeper level that is really, really, really um, critical. And this is not, this level is generally not addressed in modern Buddhism. And this deeper level is what's called the, it's the obscuration to being able to see, if we want to put it this way. And what it is, is it's these patterns that we acquire probably before we learn to speak as babies. They are emotional predispositions. They're emotional assumptions about uh, what reality is that are entirely unconscious. And, you know, some of us feel that life uh, is basically just a lot of hard work. Some of us feel uh, incredibly lonely. Some of us feel fundamentally resentful and angry. But these are all unconscious attitudes, and we actually think that's the way reality is. And that gets between us and actually what we're looking for. A spiritual teacher, you know, somebody who's actually practiced and has some actual understanding can see that in the people he or she works with. And they, we have to work together. We have to, you know, I'm working on my, um, you know, on my obstructions. I've been doing it, you know, I'm, I'm speaking for all teachers, you know, I've been doing it for a long time and I have some things to offer. But this is what we need to work on together. We need to look, take a look at your life. We need to work together I need to look at you and see where you get stuck. We need to work on this. Simply handing people practices and giving them abhishekas isn't, it's, it's just not good enough. It's not going to do it. The Trunk Rinpoche said, and my experience really bears it out, 
the relationship between the teacher and student, there's only one other relationship in life that's that intimate, and that is the one with a beloved partner, if you happen to have that kind of relationship. It's the only other one that even comes close. Mm. And it is that naked, it's that raw, and it's that real. And what we're looking for is to share reality as teacher and student. It's not, the teacher doesn't download. This is a process of a relationship that is really stripped open and where the, all the possibilities of relationality are right there. And that's what Vajrayana is about. It's about freeing ourselves, understanding fully who we are, how we are, how we work, and freeing ourselves to be able to experience our lives in a naked way. I mean, how could you do that by somebody handing you practices and with no personal relationship? I mean, you can think about it. No, it could never happen. Mm. And so kind of looping back, you know, um, some of the work you're doing to get this material out there, how do you sort of reconcile the both the need to get this stuff out there to introduce people to give resources and at the same time sort of recognizing this uh the supply issue of of really qualified teachers who can share in that process of exploring reality uh one-on-one mm-hmm. you know or or with a small number of people mm-hmm. well i want to I want to give people teachings and practices so they get to a point in their own life where they realize they have to make the full journey. And then they will come to me or to some other qualified teacher and they will put the pressure on the teacher to show up as a person. Trump Rinpoche, one thing was said about him was, he will bring chaos into your life. And then it's up to you to figure out what to do about it. And what you do about it, or something you can do about it, is you can actually start to make the full journey that's possible in human life. You can begin to meditate, you can work with a lineage, you know, and, you know, it's interesting, I mean, he didn't, I don't think he particularly cared whether it was his lineage or Zen or Theravada or Christian, or he didn't really care. What he cared about was people being willing to work at that incredible depth of their own person and free themselves at the deepest possible level. But in order to do that, people have to see they need it. In order to see they need it, they have to do a certain amount of practice. So this is my strategy, is put it out there and and certain number of people are going to be smart enough to actually go over the edge <laughs> or dumb enough maybe <laughs> or depending both. on how you look at it <laughs> both <laughs> and then and then we're in business and then then I can some people will come and work with me and that's actually what's happened from this program some incredibly interesting people have turned up some of whom I haven't even met. I mean, some are in Asia and Africa and mainland China and whatever, but somehow they got in their hands on the program. And I am able to sit down and Skype with them and work at a level that makes me very happy. I'm very happy to be able to engage people. And you really feel, you know, you and I were talking before we started about the possibilities now of the Internet and Skype in particular I can sit with somebody that I've never met and Skype with them, and it's as if we're in the same room. I really feel that. Yeah. And something happens. So I have got to trust, totally trust, that, you know, um, Tammy Simon at Sounds True had the 
if you don't mind me saying, uh, you know, had the pizzazz, you know, to put uh, put out this uh, 33 CD series. And now we have the internet so I can connect with people in a very genuine Vajrayana way. I mean, it's amazing mm. when you think about it. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.